Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Edward Ball's great-great-grandfather, Polycarp Constant Lecorn, was a carpenter in, Louisiana, carpenter in Louisiana after the Civil War and also a dedicated and violent member of the Ku Klux Klan. In his latest book, Life of a Klansman, A Family History in White Supremacy, Mr. Ball explores that family history and also offers the perspectives of descendants of African-Americans who were victims of LeCorn and his gang. It's published by Farrah Strauss and Giroux. Slaves in the Family, a previous book by Mr. Ball about his family's history as slaveholders in South Carolina, was awarded the National Book Award for Nonfiction. Edward Ball joins us now. Welcome to our show. Hi, thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Now, that earlier book, Slaves in the Family, was about your father's family's history as slaveholders in South Carolina. Didn't they operate 25 rice farms over a period of 200 years? Uh, rice, not cotton? That's, that's right. Rice was the crop, and my father's family um, was in the slave and plantation business from 1698 until 1865 mm. and beyond during the sharecropping period. And um, this book, which Slaves in the Family, I published 20 years ago. And this book, uh, Life of a Klansman, it concerns my mother's family in New Orleans, which is a totally different kettle of fish. They were simpler people, not uh, slaveholders, but um, mm. working men and women and uh, Petit Blanc, they were called Petit Blanc in the um, in the Argo of the time, meaning little whites. Well, there was a mixed relationship. Uh, it was both uh, Petit Blanc and also um, Grand Blanc, was it? Right. The, the family story uh, of the Lacorns, my mother's people, was one of class um, decline. They slid from a, a prosperous and landholding position down to the white working class during the 1800s, in the period before the Civil War. And um, the people I write about uh, experienced that class decline and the, the white supremacist violence that erupted in the aftermath of the Civil War um, expresses some of the um, experience of resentment that accompanies a loss of status. Getting back to the first book, you write that it was at a family reunion that the history of the Ball family as slaveholders really struck you. And in telling that story, you broke the silence on the taboos of the past. What was the response from your family when that book was first published? And and were you surprised at all? Right. My father's family in South Carolina, there are about 150 of us. And it, this book, Slaves in the Family, was divisive. It uh, divided yeah. men against women, uh, young against old. Um, many in the family were uh, concerned that uh, there was something poisonous or defamatory in sharing our family story with African-Americans. The book uh, had one thread that 
was notable, and that is that I've located uh, many black families whose ancestors we had once enslaved and with their consent and participation told their stories alongside my own family's story. So it was divisive in my white family to do this. You estimated that approximately 100,000 descendants of ball slaves were living in America when the book was published in 1998. But what about this book? Uh, you do expect more tensions uh, in the family as a result of your publishing this one? Yeah, uh, I expected there would be some tensions. This book concerns uh, a different family in Louisiana, not in South Carolina. And my mm-hmm. mother's family uh, uh, all live in New Orleans. I have maybe 40 cousins there. And I spent my teenage years growing up in New Orleans. It's a town that I consider a hometown. Um, But when I started writing this book about our Klansmen, the Klansmen in our family tree, uh, I I encountered much less uh, opposition, more um, a sense of this guy was a bad apple. This guy was not really part of our group. Um, and no one tried to stop me from writing this book. Whereas in the case of slaves in the family, uh, there were cases, there were events that involved people trying to stop me from writing that book. So well, the genesis different, different experience. Of, the genesis of this book was... Uh, when you looked at family files about uh, Polycarp Constant Le Corn in 2013, 10 years after your mother died, uh, but the uh, the files sat in the file cabinet for a while. What made you finally decide to, to pull them out? I was um, concerned that I might find something that I didn't want to see. Uh-huh. And uh, these were files compiled by a great aunt of mine who was the family historian in the LaCorn family in New Orleans. And many families have a family historian who is often an older woman. And this woman's name was Maud LaCorn. And in those files, I I discovered or re-encountered uh, the story of Constant LaCorn, our clansman. Uh, and it was around the time of the Trayvon Martin killing. And it was around the time of the Michael Johnson killing, followed by the Tamir Rice killing, followed by the Eric Garner killing. And it was the the series of uh, public um, killings of African-Americans that actually led me on to investigate this story. More. But initially, didn't you plan to write it as fiction? And then what led you to change your mind? I did try to write a novel about our clansman, Constant Le Corne, And uh, I wrote about 100 pages, and they were not very good. And I realized that to tell this story as a piece of history would actually be more powerful and more compelling than as a piece of fiction. So I worked with the limited archival materials that were available 
and wrote a piece of history. Now, his first name was Polycarp, but everybody called him Constant. Um, he was That's right. born. He was born before the Civil War in 1832 and served in the Confederate Army. Um, how old were you when you first learned that he'd been a member of the KKK? And how was that information even presented to you? I must have been about 10, something mm -hmm. like that, in New Orleans during visits with um, this elderly aunt that I mentioned, Maud LaCorne, who shared stories about our people and their past. And uh, it was in passing that I heard that he was in a group called the White League, mm -hmm. which was um, an analog to the Ku Klux Klan in New Orleans during the Reconstruction period. And it was a piece of um, family lore set up alongside other family lore, uh, some of it, you know, rather benign and colorful. And uh, uh, it wasn't until decades later that I recognized that this was an instance of our family playing a direct role in the uh, cruel racial history of our country. And it, it deserves some attention. Now, it's, he has a French name because uh, he was part of the white French Creole population in New Orleans and the surrounding areas of the time. How large w was that French population then? Because we don't have a lot, don't hear a lot of French names coming out of New Orleans these days. Right. Yes. Although Louis, well, New Orleans, Louis Armstrong yeah, Louis. was definitely a French name. Louis. Right. Yeah. What happened was that New Orleans was a kind of multilingual, multicultural society in the early 1800s. There were French francophones there who were descendants of the French colonists. There were uh, Latinos there who were from the period of Spanish colonial rule. There were great numbers of West Africans there, many of them Senegalese. Um, and after the Americans acquired Louisiana in the Louisiana Purchase, large numbers of Anglophones moved to Louisiana, excuse me, moved to Louisiana. And English became one of the languages spoken on the street. By the time Polycarp Constant Le Corne was a teenager in the 1840s, it was about a quarter of the population were uh, Americans speaking English, a quarter were Francophones speaking French, and a quarter were um, African Americans, enslaved African Americans speaking uh, a dialect known as Gombo. So it was a, a real um, melange of cultures. By the time of the Civil War, the Americans had dom had become dominant, and English and American-run biggest business were the dominant uh, strains in the in the local culture. It was a changing situation. You write rather damningly about the white men of New Orleans in the 1800s. You say they're not capable of violent passions or strong exertions. Uh, they don't care to work very hard. They have 
few men of superior talents. The drawbacks of their character are an overruling passion for frivolous amusements, dance, food, and a tendency for the luxurious enjoyment of the other sex without being selective of either the black or white race. <laughs> so that, what does that tell us about the world that your clansmen lived in? That uh, paragraph that you quote is actually a quote that I borrowed from a French traveler who visited New Orleans in the 1840s. He said, oh, those are not my words. Those are the words of a, mm -hmm. a Francophone who disdained the mm -hmm. um, the French-speaking population of, of New Orleans, um, which um, in its own day was known as a, uh, a pleasure-loving um, and somewhat indolent uh, class of people. Um, it may or may not be true. I'm speaking to Edward Ball about his sixth book, Life of a Klansman, A Family History of White Supremacy from Farris, Strauss, and Giroux. Um, uh, some of the other books had to do with movies and other things, but um, two books about um, growing up in the South, the descendants of people who uh, were engaged in uh, slavery and the Ku Klux Klan. Now, um, in the case of your great grandfather, uh, he, uh, uh, what was I going to say? What was uh, the Ku Klux Klan like in New Orleans after the Civil War? You, you say it was also called the White League. The KKK wasn't a, a real organization, was it? It was uh, just groups of people who, who got together uh, and, and decided to act. The KKK emerges in Tennessee in 1867 and becomes a militia-style um, vigilante movement. And it spreads down into the Lower South, into Alabama, Mississippi, and Upper Louisiana, and Georgia. And in each county, there are there are militias that are run quite uh, centrally by typically by former confederate officers in the southern part of louisiana this is this is getting quite detailed the kkk the ku klux klan uh is displaced by a series of other militias uh the white league is named one it looks quite like the ku klux Another group is called the Knights of the White Camellia, and these groups operate very much like the Ku Klux. They conduct night riding raids. They uh, they visit black villages and torment people and beat people. They conduct targeted assassination of Reconstruction politicians. And my um, great grandfather, Constant Lacorn participated in these two groups, the um, the Knights of the White Camellia and the, the White League. Did they re resemble the gang in, in White Hoods that we associate with the Klan, or is that something that develops later? They do and they don't. They operate as uh, disguised gangs, but they're not in white sheets and hoods. The costume of the day was to cover your head with um, a meal sack and to sew ornaments on it and to wear 
um, ordinary workmen's clothes that have been decorated with emblems and stars. Typically, the women folk, the the wives of clansmen, um, did the, the uh, costume manufacture. The white robe and and hood was the invention of D.W. Griffith um, mm-hmm. in. The, Birth, of a Nation. Birth of a Nation in 1915, or his uh, production designers, mm. and uh, it it was after 1915 on the on the great success of that film, which rekindled the Ku Klux movement, that Klansmen adopted this universal uniform of uh, white hood and sheet. You you said that many of the uh, the leaders were, were former. Uh, officers in the Confederate Army. Constant had been a second lieutenant in the 18th Louisiana Infantry. His cousin had been in the 13th Louisiana Regiment. Uh, but didn't many of the returning Confederate soldiers join volunteer fire departments? But they were actually military units that uh, were assaulting the black communities. Were they assaulting them just mm-hmm. to keep them in line? Yes, this was a, a, an unusual discovery for me, uh, 25,000 Confederate veterans returned to Louisiana after the Civil War, maybe 15,000 of them in New Orleans. And suddenly the the volunteer fire departments uh, triple and quadruple their membership as these returning soldiers join. And the the volunteer fire departments uh, become militarized and they are the first uh, match thrown mm. on the fire of white supremacy. They are the the assault, the forward assault units in the early campaigns of uh, of violence. Um, it's it's these fire departments that then feed into the uh, units that we were talking about earlier, the, the Ku Klux and the White Camellia. And, and were they attempting to keep black people in line? That's a, a euphemistic way of, of putting it. They were the, the point on the spear, if you like, in a campaign to reestablish white supremacy uh, during a time when it was uh, in, under threat. Now, did they at all re- resemble the, the later clans, the one uh, that reappeared in 1915, you mentioned uh, glorified in D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, which opposed Catholics and Jews and, and immigrants and um, lasted for a while. In fact, uh, wasn't the president's father, Fred C. Trump, detained at a KKK rally in Queens, New York in 1927? He was, yes. Uh, the president's father was arrested in 1927. It's not clear whether he was actually a Klan sympathizer. According to the newspaper accounts, so there were several of them, he was in uh, in a Klan march in Queens in 1927 on Memorial Day when he was arrested in a riot um, attacking uh, other marchers. The uh, first generation Ku Klux during Reconstruction bears some resemblance to the second generation Ku Klux of the teens and 19 teens and 20s. Um, Although the first generation Ku Klux was monomaniacally focused 
upon um, displacing black people from positions of authority and, and business and uh, entitlements and, and voting. Whereas the second generation Ku Klux had a wider sort of cultural uh, remit. They wanted to um, enforce the chastity of of women and and was, and prohibition. Catholic, yeah, prohibition. Right? They were they were um, focused on on uh, on abstinence from, from alcohol consumption, and, uh, but they were also um, they were also campaigning uh, on behalf of the uh, recent successes of eugenics, the the um, the movement that argued uh, in a pseudoscientific way for the superiority of whites over uh, other races, and and that was that was the part of their ideological bread and butter. The, the third uh, clan emerged around 1950. That's the one that's still with us. Um, so what happened with your your great-great-grandfather? Wasn't he indicted for treason against the United States? He was, yes. And one of the actions in which he participated, he uh, participated in, a, in an attempted coup against the state government of Louisiana in 1873 and he was part of a commando unit of 30 or 40 men who seized a police station in New Orleans, uh, part of a, an attempt to overthrow the government. And um, there, was a, there was a siege uh, against this uh, commando unit, and they were recaptured by the, um, by the U.S. Army. And he was charged with treason and with violating the Ku Klux Klan Act, which was the first of the Reconstruction Acts that the Congress had passed to try to stamp out these white militias. Now, you, you mentioned that he was called a Petit Blanc. Um, there was a lot of uh, uh, racial classification being done uh, over the years. Uh, the French phys physician named Francois Bernier um, develop racial classifications in 1684. I don't know if, if they could be called racist. Um, then 50 years later, the famous Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus uh, created classification of the human race called Homo sapiens. And then there's the Comte Georges Louis Leclerc, who believed that Adam and Eve were Caucasian and that other races came out of them. They were the result of degeneration. Yes, right. Well, and were the, these uh, people believing all of that? Because uh, we go on. Samuel Morton, a natural historian at the Pennsylvania Medical College in 1840, was the uh, one of the first uh, American philosophers of white supremacy. Uh, his grew out of anatomy. What was he trying to prove? Or well, answer. The, 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 I'm sorry, that was a long question. question first. Yeah, yeah. Did they believe all that? I think uh, some of them were influenced by the race theories that were uh, cropping up throughout the 18th and 19th century. The one that that was the most corrosive was the theory of polygenesis. Mm. This was the notion that the various races, and typically the, there were five races argued, were parts of five different 
uh, evolutionary developments, and so that black people were of a different species than white, whereas monogenesis was the belief and is the belief that all humanity descends from the same human human trunk, uh, and only recently, 25 years ago, did we did science determined that that trunk emerges out of East Africa. Um, but polygenesis... They would have been shocked to learn, they would have been shocked to learn that uh, the our original ancestors were probably dark-skinned. Sure. And it is still shocking to many of us, I think, um, in, in, in our unconscious um, white racial identity to learn that our distant predecessors emerged uh, in uh, Central and East Africa. Uh, but polygenesis uh, was taught and circulated in the, in the press throughout the 19th century. And uh, some of the scientists, you actually named a couple of them, Samuel Morton uh, was one. He was a, 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 an archaeologist in Philadelphia who tried to prove the existence of separate races by studying crania. And, uh, and he had several influential followers uh, at Harvard. There was a guy called Louis Agassiz who, uh, who wrote widely and was very influential in, in establishing this idea of the separate evolution of the races. Uh, and I think that that had the most corrosive effect and really planted white supremacy um, most deeply in our, in our uh, cultural consciousness. But it's interesting to see how many different uh, terms of distinction were developed during the, the time. We have mulatto, the child of a white man and, and, and a black person or dark, uh, or, uh, well, whether it's a male or female uh, African, uh, some, uh, someone of African descent, a quadroon, the child of a white man and a mulatto woman, a griff, the child of a, of a, a black and, and a mulatto, uh, <laughs> mixed blood. The, the child of a white man and a quadroon, uh, Metis, a, a mixed race Native American with one Indian parent and one white or, or African American parent. It, it, why was it important at the time to come up with so many words to clarify the differences between people? <laughs> this was um, an obsession of that region, Louisiana, and further south, um, Parts of these former Spanish empire um, developed a quite uh, an articulated system of race classification. Um, the, the, if you boil it down in Louisiana, uh, by the mid-1800s, there was a white class. There was a dark-skinned black class, many of them enslaved. And there was a mixed race class in between, which the Americans called mulattoes mm. and the French called uh, gens de couleur libre, free people of color. Uh, when the, uh, after the Civil War and the formation of Jim Crow segregation, all people of color who were not um, lily white were pushed into the category of African-American and black Negro. 
and it was it was an American. Um, it was an Englishman's, an English-speaking uh, desire to create a world that was uh, made of two, only two parts, and um, and this uh, was one of the interesting subplots of the of the Louisiana experience. Now, Constant wasn't a, a slave owner, although there had been some slaves held in the family. Uh, so he wasn't really losing much uh, as a result of the war. Why do you think uh, he um, uh, was uh, so uh, uh, moved to 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 uh, be violent, and uh, what contributed to his racist ways of thinking? Well, he. Um... He was, in fact, a small-scale slaveholder. I believe he held yeah. two people in slavery, one of whom ran away during the Civil War, and the other one he sold. They, um, he did, he'd gotten order... him through his marriage, didn't he? His wife had inherited That's right. That's right, yes. That's right. And uh, and he, he saw that his parents were slaveholders who had enslaved some eight or ten people, and his grandparents were slaveholders who had enslaved twenty or twenty-five people. And what his experience reflected was uh, a kind of loss of um, status, which he turned into um, a terrific resentment against um, people of color. The that the fuel of some kinds of violent racism is a resentment, I think, that derives from loss of personal status. After the Civil War, he witnessed his ability to make a living was being compromised because there were black craftsmen who were taking work away from him. And he... Uh, and like many of his time, many whites of his time, he turned his rage uh, against the people that he believed had had caused his uh, and the, dis the disruption of his world. And that would be in uh, eman newly emancipated African Americans. I have to take a little break here. We'll be back with more. Uh, of this discussion here on Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We're also streaming at WBAI.org. Before I get back to my guest, Edward Ball, I'd like to take a couple of minutes to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners to step up right now and, and go to our website, give to WBAI.org, or, or to call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and the station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. Again, that number is 516-620-3602. The website is give to wbai.org. That's the give and then the number two, wbai.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year and also spread out your own financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of the station, what we call 
BAI buddy. And I'm delighted right now to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing on today's show, Life of a Klansman, A Family History and White Supremacy by my guest, Edward Ball. This book is about a subject that's as important as ever, but whatever level you are able to show your support for the show and the station that brings you uh, here uh, on weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. The important thing is that you make that step and keep this show coming to you and all of your fellow listeners. If, if Leonard Lopez at large has played a role in your daily life, consider stepping up for someone who's just discovering it. And why not give them the gift of the hour of conversation, insight, and knowledge that we hope that we're bringing you with each installment of this program. Uh, you can do that by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to our website, give to wbaiorg Please help support independent radio um, in New York. Uh, remember, we are totally listener-supported. And don't forget to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at the station, thank you very much. My guest, Edward Ball, his latest book is Life of a Klansman, A Family History and White Supremacy, published by uh, Farrah Strauss-Giroux. Uh, let's talk, you call this book a micro-history. What's a micro-history uh, and how does it inform a broader view of history? Microhistory is the term used by professional historians, academic historians, to characterize a book about an anonymous, small-time individual, um, a local story that involves um, a working man or a working woman or a midwife or a cook, uh, and uh, it contrasts, obviously, with the overwhelming majority of uh, history literature that concerns the lives of the great and good, the dominant and the elite over time. Uh, a micro-history would be something that Howard Zinn might approve of that uh, you know, tells the stories of, of the people from below. So this is a look at the life and of a of a carpenter and his immediate family, in uh, who left very few records or evidence of his of his life behind as a way of trying to see what the common man um, experienced uh, in in the in the tide of of events. You also write about other people. In, in 1830, David Wallace, an African-American seaman from North Carolina, wrote a manifesto, David Wallace's appeal to the colored citizens of the United States. His mother was a free woman of color. His father was a slave. And what was the message in his manifesto? Um, David Walker's appeal to the colored citizens was uh, a kind of... Um, Invective um, attack on the on the white domination of American life that uh, that called for uh, a violent rising and defiance against um, against the white black caste system, and it was it was uh, circulated 
uh, in by word of mouth and hand to hand in 1829, 30, 31, in, in five or 700 copies uh, in, the, in several cities, and then disappeared. It, it caused a great deal of alarm, this little pamphlet uh, among white authorities, and uh, it, uh, its contents were confiscated. And it was only a, 120 or 30 years later that historians found this this, uh, in, this incendiary man, manuscript and brought it back to light. You sought out the stories of descendants of African-Americans who were the victims of LeCorne and his band of vigilantes. At what point did you decide to include that in telling the story? Well, I wanted to uh, ask the permission of African-Americans whose families had experienced violence at the hands of the Ku Klux um, to tell some of their story uh, in this book of mine. And so it was from the start that I, I thought this would be part of the, uh, of the, of the text. So I sought out two, uh, I found two families whose um, predecessors had experienced uh, different kinds of violence or or oppression at the hands of the Ku Klux of the Reconstruction time and went to their doors and and um, asked if they would talk to me and they did and was this story part of their family a sense of family history as well indeed indeed it was uh, this, uh, these years created a, uh, a memory of trauma for tens of thousands of African-American families and the, the people that I uh, in, sought out um, had quite a good bit of family memory from the, uh, the decade after the Civil War and they knew all about it. They knew all about what their ancestors had experienced. And uh, so it was not a, not a mystery to them. They also talked about how their families had recovered and carried on following what had happened uh, as a result of uh, the, yeah. the violence of, of the Klan. Um, how long did it yeah. take some of them to recover? Well, have they some? I, I suspect in some cases it's still there on some level. I think that that some of the uh, tragic uh, violence and injury that is embedded in American history becomes braided into the memory of individual families as one thread in its life. So in the case of the family named Kapla that uh, I write about in this book, whose predecessors were on the scene at a, a massacre in which my ancestor seems to have participated. Uh, it was a, about 30 years after those events that their family became part of the, the or the original 
generation of jazz musicians. Um, and some of them were directly involved with the creation of the new forms of music coming out of New Orleans at the beginning of the 1900s um, and played with, you know, people like Jelly Roll Morton and Louis Armstrong. And and so the the story of family trauma is not the solitary story of family memory, but it's one thread that is braided with others. Now, talking about jazz, did you speak to a woman named Janelle Santiago Marsalis? Mar- Marsalis is not an uh, an unknown name in the jazz world. <laughs> it is not. That is not an unknown name. Yes, this was um, a descendant of of a man named Louis Kepler, who oh, yeah. was um, mm-hmm. who was. The, he, yes, she was a descent. She is a descendant of a man named Louis Kaplan, who was uh, uh, on the scene of this uh, massacre and nearly, uh, nearly was killed himself um, in 1866. And uh, she happens to have married into the uh, Marcellus family of legend that uh, that today is is the uh, is one of the important, uh, important presences in New Orleans music. Do we uh, know how many white Americans probably have an ancestor who was a member of the KKK? Well, I've made a, uh, an educated guess that there might be 135 million white wow. Americans whose ancestor who have in their family tree, a Klansman. And uh, with that comprises about 50% of the white population of the United States. Despite the fact that there's been so much immigration since the Civil War? Yes. And um, here's how uh, I've made that demographic uh, estimate. If you take the second Ku Klux of the 19 teens and 20s, which had between four and five million members. And you, you project that each one of those individuals uh, has living descendants. Those descendants um, would be uh, about 35 descendants per member. And that aggregate figure which is to say the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the clans people of the 19-teens and 20s add up to one-half of the white population of the United States. Now, most white folks do not know that they have or had uh, a Klansman in their family tree, and um, there are reasons why certain um, aspects of family memory are censored and others are uncensored, and it's uh, it's it's part of this story itself. The story of um, of white supremacist violence is uh, is one that is censored in some places and uncensored in others. Now, Constant was considered a hero by his family at the time. Is he considered an embarrassment today by all of his descendants? He's 
considered today something of an outlier, a bad apple, um, sort of uh, similar to the way that um, law enforcement uh, describes um, police officers who engage in violence against citizens. They are bad apples. That's the way that he's regarded today. But you're right. Uh, the clans were, for most white Southerners, heroes for decades, for generations. They were considered heroes because they succeeded in, in reestablishing white supremacy uh, during the time when it was threatened uh, in the late 1800s. And because of that, they were, there were monuments built to them and ceremonies that commemorated their uh, their deeds and Constant was lionized for for many decades until the civil rights movement of the 1960s when memory southern white memory began to change slowly change but today we have a wide range of white supremacists and neo-nazi groups uh, as we have uh, seen in the demonstrations and around the country. And of course, we saw uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, recently President Trump retweeted a video of a supporter saying white power. So these issues are very much in the present. Yes, I believe they are. Um, white supremacy is it's like an underground river in American history, and it's bursts to the surface in a geyser from time to time. And that's just what's happened since 2016. And there's been an eruption of white racist violence. And I estimate that some 300 people have died in race, so-called race massacres aimed at non-white and Jewish victims in the past five years. Uh, and uh, it's, it is a pandemic of of a of a kind that um, I'm I'm not sure when we'll see the end of it, but that's it's certainly a um, reflects reflects some of the story in life of a Klansman, or life of a Klansman reflects some of the story that we're seeing today. Well, I can't imagine that there was much concern about uh, Jews in uh, the in Constance. Uh, circles uh, because uh, there probably weren't too many in New Orleans and, and uh, surrounding areas, but uh, the Klan has also been anti-Catholic. Wasn't Constant... Uh, he was French Creole, yes. which means I assume he would have been a Catholic. That's right, yes. I, the anti-Catholicism of Ku Klux ideology was strongest a hundred years ago in the 1920s. In the oh. first generation of the Klan, it was present, but not corrosive. I think, however, having said that, that you remember I mentioned that the Ku Klux emerges in Tennessee and then draws, mm -hmm. dribbles down into the, into the northern halves of uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. Uh, those are the areas that are Protestant white dominated uh, even by that time. And Southern Louisiana is Catholic, below 
south, south of the city of Baton Rouge is Catholic. And in those areas, Ku Klux Klan is replaced by organizations that are Catholic. Um, the White League is, is one, and the Knights of the Camellia is another. So I believe that the anti-Catholic impulse in 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 the Klan was present, and it, it's, it begins to explain why the Ku Klux Klan did not have its brand uh, front and center in events of the southern part of the state of Louisiana. So Constant probably wouldn't have called himself a Klansman? He would have responded that he was part of the Ku Klux. Mm-hmm. The, um, the, the newspapers and word on the street always called any white terrorism Ku Klux. It was a generic term for... What did it come from? Um, the Ku Klux came, uh, so it is said, from um, a, a, uh, its initial group of, um, of militiamen who were looking for a name for their group, and they hearkened back to their um, membership, their belonging to these uh, Greek societies uh, in, in the colleges of their youth, and Kuklos was said to be uh, a Greek word for circle. Kuklos was a word for circle, and uh, and in one of their meetings, someone said, "Why don't we call it Kuklos Clan and spell everything with a K?" And that that stuck. So it was it was coined by the first members. You write, I'm <laughs> quoting, it's not a distortion to say that Constance's rampage 150 years ago helps in some impossible to measure way to clear space for the authority and comfort of whites living now, not just for me and for his 50 or 60 descendants, but for whites in general. I am an heir to Constance's acts of terror. I do, de- do not deny it and the bitter truth makes me sick at my st- at the stomach. Mm-hmm. Yes. If you think about this thing, whiteness, I think that it's like an animal that's asleep in the mind of, of many of us Americans. It's an unconscious identity. I think that we white people... Uh, in some subliminal way, regard ourselves as a tribe. And I think that subliminally, no matter what our political values stated, uh, that we see ourselves as the people of authority and comfort and intelligence and command and beauty and centrality and the people naturally in the seat of power. Um, I think that those are some of the components of, of white racial identity. And I'm, I have no doubt that the violence of Ku Klux militias um, succeeded in making room for, uh, for our, our comfort today, even though it might be separated by a couple of generations from, from the violence itself. Do you think that 
telling stories like the one of your great great grandfather or the the story of the the ball plantations can help us to move forward well, do, do we just feel so distant from all of that that is a hope that i have that is a hope that i have yes i i believe that um that uh, claiming if you like some of the you know tra uh, tragic parts of our national narrative enslavement white supremacist violence and making them public and talking about them as though they actually are in our makeup has a medicinal effect uh, it's not easy to do that but i believe that the best way to to um if you like um heal ourselves of of uh of racism is by looking at in the face in um, in our national memory and so that's what i'm trying to do Edward Ball is the author of six books, including The Inventor and The Tycoon, which is about the birth of moving pictures, uh, Slaves in the Family, which we talked about earlier, which earned him a National Book Award. And we've been discussing his latest Life of a Klansman, A Family History in White Supremacy, published by Farris Strauss and Giroux. Thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been fascinating. Well, thank you, Leonard. It's good to be with you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison, who pre prepared today's interview. If you're just discovering our program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive discussions, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. And don't forget to visit our website, LeonardThelopateAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. If you'd like to share uh, some of your thoughts about any of our programs or just uh, want to say hello, you can reach me by email at leonardlopate at wbai.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI finds itself in a very difficult financial position these days because of the pandemic. If you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please go right now to our website, give to wbaiorg That's give, the number 2, WBAI.org, or call 516-620-3602 to help keep community radio alive in New York and the metropolitan area. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when distinguished professor of history at Vanderbilt University, Thomas A. Schwartz, will discuss his latest book, Henry Kissinger and American Power. We'll see you then.